This episode is brought to you by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And when hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. In years to come, Harry would never quite remember how he'd managed to get through his exams when he half expected Voldemort to come bursting through the door at any moment. Yet the days crept by, and there could be no doubt that Fluffy was still alive and well behind the locked door. The Belated Binge Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Belated Binge Podcast. I'm Zach, and I'm your host, revisiting some of the most iconic series in recent memory that I was incredibly late on, like our current binge of Harry Potter, where despite being the same age as movie Harry, I didn't read this series through until my mid-twenties. That's the belated part. Now we're going back, a chapter or two at a time, digging deep into storylines and theorizing about what's not on the page, particularly Dumbledore's role and how his master plan is unfolding, and infusing sarcasm wherever I can stuff it. That's the binge part. Together they make the belated binge, and today we continue our reread of the Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's or Philosopher's Stone first book, and this is a big one. We're in chapter 16, Through the Trap Door. We made it. We're almost there. But first, this podcast is going to have spoilers. If you haven't read these by now, you're even later than I was. And this podcast could have some adult language. You can buy them in the kids section, but I didn't read them until I was a grown-ass man. Before we catch up, a big thank you to Sarah from First Year's Podcast for coming up last week. If you missed that episode, I don't know exactly how you're skipping chapters, but go back and give it a listen after you get through this one, of course. Uh, We also had a great bonus conversation on Patreon. Remember, there are two tiers of patrons, starters and all-stars. All patrons receive early access to every episode, and it's ad-free. All-stars get bonus episodes like the conversation that we had with Sarah last week, uh, the one with Amanda from The Fox and the Foxhound from her guest appearance on Chapters 8 and 9, plus all the theory corners that I've posted throughout the book. I'm also working on some new benefits for patrons that I hope that uh, I'll have all wrapped up and ready to go to start in season two. Uh, One of those things is trying to have the show be uh, as engaging as possible and try to get more engagement from listeners into the episodes. Uh, Speaking of which, I asked last week's Game of Inches segment on uh, social, uh, the question from that, and I did get a couple of responses. So I'm going to pull those up here real quick. The first response that we had was from uh, Just Keep Rolling podcast. They are a uh, book, movie, compare, and contrast Harry Potter podcast. And their response was, I'm sure they would have meddled that information out another way. Meddling is totally Harry's superpower. Uh, And I guess I should have told you what the question was. It was what would have happened, uh, how would they have gotten the Voldemort and uh, Sorcerer's Stone information uh, had they not, had Harry and Hermione not gotten caught 
and got in detention and had to go into the Forbidden Forest. So uh, that was the thoughts of the Just Keep Rolling podcast. Shout out to them. Uh, also got one from Sarah, who apparently um, had some time to think about it after we recorded for last week's podcast. And uh, her thoughts was, uh, da, 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 I had them here. There we go. Frenzy would have made friends with a tiny acromantula. Would who would have uh, write it, written a note with a clue on it? Had the spider deliver it to either Hagrid to slip up and mention, or deliver it directly to Harry. So apparently, Frenzy is employing the descendants of Aragog in order to pass the secret message of the Sorcerer's Stone and Voldemort being after it to the trio. I'll take it. It's very creative and clever. Uh, but that's the kind of stuff that I'm looking for here with the uh, Game of Inches questions. If it doesn't go the way that it went in the book, how might it have gone? And how might that have impacted the story? So uh, thank you for those responses. Uh, I will continue to try to post more questions and get more of those uh, answers on the episodes uh you can engage on those social media platforms when i ask those questions uh I would, i'll try to do some of them ahead of the episode recording some of them will be post episode release just so that we can get a, a variety and kind of see what clicks and what works for everybody um in the you know response department uh but um I had a thought and I just lost it. Uh, oh, how can you how can you give your responses? Uh, you can do so on the social media platform that it has been shared on, of course, uh, in the comments. Uh, you can go to the DMs of that social media platform as well. You can email the show, uh, belatedbinge at gmail. Uh, but the really cool feature that I would love it if you would do is go to the website, belatedbinge.com, and leave your answer as a voicemail. You can do so right on the website. It's on the little right-hand side of of the browser. You just click it and leave the voicemail. Uh, make sure you let me know who you are and, and what question you're answering. And uh, I will do my best to get as many of them as possible into the episodes. Uh, so yeah. How about we get into this week's chapters? Chapter? Yeah, just one. We're only doing one. Uh, but to do that, we have to catch up from last week with Sarah. Uh, we had a dumbass dragon chapter that sole purpose was to get Harry some information about the plot and get him into the woods. After successfully luring the boy into said woods through a guise of detention, he nearly came face to face with Moldy Baby and probably would have died. Uh, luckily, a half-horse man who may or may not look like Jack's Teller with hooves was there to save the day and give Harry the info dump that he needed to figure out what they need to do in today's chapter. So, we're going to pick things up with our play-by-play. Play-by-play. Play-by-play -play segment of the Belated Binge Podcast is where we give a recap of the chapter that we read this week from Book 1, The Sorcerer's or Philosopher's Stone, Chapter 16, Through the Trap Door. We begin with exams, because this is a school, remember? Between invisible excursions, middle-of-the-night detentions, near-death experiences, and the looming threat of Voldemort, it's kind of easy to forget that these are children who came to Hogwarts to be educated, not brutally murdered. So, sure, of course, there's 
going to be exams. And Harry can't believe he's even getting through his because he's not sleeping on account of night terrors. And he's walking around with constant pain from the scar on his forehead. And all the while, the only thing on his mind is the Sorcerer's Stone and the inevitable moment that he believes Snape is going to try to steal it and bring Voldemort back to full strength and to come murder him in his sleep. I wouldn't be sleeping either. Uh, this podcast has talked a lot about the Dumbledore Master Plan Theory. Dumbledore is my favorite character study from the series. How he puts all the pieces together, how he's always working the angles. It's utterly fascinating to me. I find it incredibly compelling and particularly for a discussion on a podcast, which is my opinion, of course, but hopefully it's yours too. Let me know. <laughs> uh, Dumbledore is also a bit of a bullshit character, let's be honest. Uh, when the author needed to advance the plot or explain how one of her crazy-ass ideas made any sense at all, we typically learned it through Dumbledore. But what makes it work and I think makes the series not suffer because of it, is that you can actually believe it. Whether you're speed reading for the first or 45th time, or you're picking the thing apart every chapter for, say, I don't know, a podcast, you don't get taken out of the story by having Dumbledore used this way. And if you're picking apart every chapter as we are right now, you kind of start to see it fall into place a little bit. I have loved looking at the story through this lens and trying to figure out what Dumbledore knew at what point and when did he start figuring out key details that are going to come up later and when did he start putting certain things into motion and certain pieces on the chessboard. I say all that because I'm a rambler, uh, but also because nowhere in that slew of words that came out of my mouth did i say flawless blameless uh without fault perfect i'm not even sure he was ethical and this is a really really big point in the story for any anti-dumbledore people to stand up onto their soapbox the mental and emotional turmoil that harry's going through right now the nightmares the pain in his scar, the anxiety about the stone, Snape, Voldemort. It sounds like hell behind a lightning bolt. Which is definitely our next Wizard Rock single. I'm going to have to go back through and try to pick how many times I've said that. By now, I think we can make an album. And we should. But there's, it's a lot for someone to deal with. If COVID and the pandemic taught us anything, mental health is no joke. And Harry sure as hell isn't going through therapy. And he's 11. If our theory's correct, and it's actually been Dumbledore the whole time laying out the breadcrumbs for Harry to find and piece together the mystery of who's after the stone, not just you know giving him the visibility cloak, but everything along the way, all of the apparent Hagrid slip-ups, the detention in the forest, the flying lesson, the mirror, everything, then nearly all of this stress that Harry's feeling is Dumbledore's fault. This is a shit ton of stress and pressure to lay at the feet of an 11-year-old. Now is it all Dumbledore's fault? All of it? Of 
course not. He didn't make the prophecy that marked Harry as a target for Voldemort. He didn't make Voldemort show up at Harry's house to murder his parents and try to kill him as a baby. He didn't make the horcruxes that tethered Voldemort to life so that he'd spend every waking moment trying to regain a body and power so that he could finally kill the boy who lived. None of that is Dumbledore's fault, unless, of course, you think he should have killed Tom Riddle when he was a kid and just been done with it all. I might not blame you there, because that kid was creepy. But the way he grooms Harry manipulates the circumstances in his life, his relationships, his surroundings, the way he guides him in a way that truly leaves him one option. Try to kill Voldemort before he kills you. The method may not have been kind to Harry, but it's not all madness. There's a goal in mind. The question is what that goal really is. Is Dumbledore doing all this to defeat Voldemort or to save Harry's life? This is a fairly polarizing question. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, plug that voicemail thing again. If you missed it when I said it five minutes ago, go to the website, belatedbinge.com, and leave a voicemail on where you think Dumbledore is right now. Because personally, I don't think there's one answer. At this very moment, I believe that Dumbledore sees young Harry as little more than a chess piece in an effort to take down Voldemort for good. As I've established on previous episodes, I think he already knows Harry's going to be killed by Voldemort in the forest, and he wants that death to bring the Dark Lord's downfall. However, I think there's a certain point in this story where that changes, and the goal becomes keep Harry alive for good. And I can't wait to get there and to talk about it with you. But for now, we have a super angsty Harry who just finished exams and lightning bolts. I like it when I do that. Lightning bolts. Get it? I might be the only one. Anyway, he jumps up. He runs to Hagrid's. All along the way, his brain's just connecting dots like an evidence board in a low-budget crime drama and we see it play out through the way he's bringing ron and hermione up to speed with this theorizing that he's doing like in the moment and it's rather impressive almost as if the writer needed a lot of things to happen at once to get this thing moving towards the climax because we're almost done with this book but he's skipping all the pleasantries he reaches haggard's hut and he begins just interrogating him about the stranger that he got the dragon egg from. Remember, back in that stupid dragon chapter. Yeah, that one. That dragon egg. Hagrid had gotten drunk playing cards and won a hand of whatever card game they were playing. I'm going to assume Texas Hold'em because that's the one that I know how to play. <laughs> um... But apparently the dragon head was pushed into the center of the pot, and along with all the chips and, I don't know, galleons and rubies and maybe some trinkets of some kinds, in came the dragon egg to Hagrid's position. But it turns out he was the one being played, not the card hand. The stranger who kept his face hidden the whole time was feeding him drinks, kept him talking, and it was time to seal the deal. 
dropped the dragon egg, which is the creature Haggard has wanted more than any other in his entire life. Stranger did his homework. And what did this stranger get in return? The secret to get past Fluffy. Play him a little music and he'll fall right to sleep. The stranger knows. And now so do our little heroes in training. And what do they do? The only logical thing that's happened so far in this entire book. They try to go to Dumbledore. But alas, uh, where in Dumbledore's master plan does it say let the hero in training come to you to solve the problem for him? It doesn't. It never ever does. So, as the trio try and tell Prof McGee how urgent it is that they talk to old Dumby, she shuts them down and tells them that Dumby ain't home and that they need to not worry about the stone because it's perfectly safe. And this is how it had to go, right? We're reading a young adult series, and this is the earliest adventure. It's natural for the 11-year-old kid to seek help from the adults once they figure out some real shit's going down that they can't handle. This isn't sneaking to the library or trying to help a friend get rid of an illegal dragon before they get in trouble or burned alive. This is the possible return of the darkest wizard of this time period. It's also natural that in such a book series that the adults refuse to take the children seriously and dismiss them for punching above their weight class. Of course, the adults are always wrong and often rather stupid and pretty arrogant at that. This forces the child heroes to do the heroic shit and ingrains in them at an early age not to confide in authority to save the day. If they want it done right, they have to do it themselves. This is true in Harry Potter, and it's also true in old Dumby's master plan. I don't think for a second that Dumbledore was actually tricked into going to the ministry. I don't. I think he got the fake letter, he knew shit was going down, and for his plan to work, he had to play the part. In my head canon, in here, somewhere rattling around, he faked his departure Similarly to the way that he and Harry take off to the cave when they're going after the Locket Horcrux in Half-Blood Prince. They fake as if they're going to the Hogshead and apparate out of there when the coast is clear. I think he did the same thing here. He faked a trip to the Ministry and playing it off likely rather loudly so that Quirrell got the news that he was leaving. But I don't think he actually went Anywhere, I think he did his super strong delusionment charm, making himself invisible, and he went to post-watch while the events unfolded, ready to take notes and see how Harry and his little hero trio handled themselves in the obstacle course that he set up for them. Yes, I said for them, because honestly... I believe he intended it to be just Harry, but he got more than he bargained for with Hermione and Ron tagging along. But the idea was that the protections were put in place in front of the stone, and they were supposedly done so to stop a qualified adult and likely skilled wizard. I, I think it's nonsense. It's completely laughable. None of this stuff was made to stop adults. It was made to stop children. They were set up as a test. A test for Harry. 
and how would he respond in different situations was ultimately the answer key that Dumbledore was trying to fill in. In order for Dumbledore to assess Harry's strengths, his weaknesses, and to continue his development toward one day, hopefully, bring the official downfall of Tom Marvolo Riddle, or better known in this book as Valdi Baby. But before we get to the test, Harry's leadership skills and his thinking under pressure kicks in immediately, the same way that it did back in the Troll chapter of Halloween. Harry knows the shit's going down that night because Dumbledore was lured away supposedly and after getting through an awkward conversation with snape he turns into this you know captain quarterback putting his team in position to do the best thing that he knows how and that is protect the stone hermione was supposed to watch snape and he and ron were going to go stand guard over the third floor corridor as if a giant three-headed dog wasn't enough apparently the thing likes to take naps, so the next best thing? Two 11-year-olds. Why not? It's a great plan. What could go wrong? Everything. That's the answer to that question. Everything. Prophet McGee chases Harry and Ron from the corridor. Hermione crumbles under the pressure of being confronted by Snape, and their first attempt at defending the stone themselves is toast before it even started. And that leaves only one logical decision left go on offense. Harry says he's going to use the invisibility cloak that he was lucky to get back. Thank you, Dumbledore. Next time, don't be an idiot and leave it where you were. In that case, the tallest tower. He's going to use the invisibility cloak to try to get the stone, get there first, retrieve it, and hopefully that's going to save the day. Right, that's the plan. And once again, as he was at multiple points in this book, but in a very, very uh, <laughs> direct way, Ron is ride or die. His response is, will it cover all three of us? And the official, official Golden Trio is born. Of course, before they can sneak out and do this heroic Golden Trio stuff, they're confronted by Neville. Oh, Neville. He musters up the courage to put up his dukes like he's going to stop all three of them from leaving at once. Of course, he's not going to be successful, but I'll be damned if anybody saw how coming. Hermione whips out her wand, apologizes to Neville, and Petrificus Totalis' ass right in front of the portrait hole. For those who are new to this series, and for some reason don't care about spoilers as they read, she paralyzed this kid, and I want to know what book she read that from, and who did she practice on before this moment? Because this is not a 11-year-old read a spell in a book and all of a sudden knows to do it, how to accomplish it, and when to pull it out. And that Neville's not going to be just permanently lying there. You know, who would know? She's a child. Unless she's practiced. I don't know where. But I do remember back to when we brought this up for a minute in chapters 8 and 9 with Amanda from The Fox and the Foxhound. And her headcanon is that Hermione and 
Professor McGonagall, old Prof McGee have been doing some side lessons. And that's a fun headcanon for this moment. Anyways, after getting past Peeves as their first unofficial uh, obstacle outside of their common room, they play some music on the flute that Hagrid had whittled Harry, because all have giants whittle, and it's just a lucky coincidence that what they need to get past the three-headed dog is music. And the gift that Hagrid gives Harry for Christmas is a flute that plays music. I'm going to let you sit with that one for a second and pretend that this is all a coincidence. Anyways, Harry jumps down the trapdoor first because he's the main character and the other two have to follow him. First obstacle, check. They land in Devil's Snare, which is apparently a vine-like plant that wraps itself around you and squeezes the life out of you. Which is cool, right? Yeah. And we get one of a lot of people's favorite Ron and Hermione exchanges, at least I'm assuming it is because it's great. She remembers Devil's Snare prefers dark and damp places, and when Harry suggests a fire, Hermione responds that there's no wood. Ron shouts, are you mad? Are you a witch or not? And it's great. Hermione remembers her magic stick and makes those little blue flames that she used to catch Snape on fire in the Quidditch chapter. And obstacle two, check. They reach the room full of little birds, which Harry quickly realizes are actually flying keys, and one of them unlocks the door to the next passageway, because sure, why not? Harry spots the right key, he takes a, uh, well, he, he ends up catching it, but it does take a coordinated approach in order to get it. Ron and Hermione sort of boxing it in, almost decoy-ish, and not that, you know, they wouldn't have actually tried to catch it. It was them coming at it from two different angles that ultimately gave Harry the jump that he needed in order to end up grabbing it. And it's the right key. It fits the door. And here's where I think it would be funny if any of the keys that were up there would have actually opened the door. Like, a cheat code is just grab any of them and it works. Um, but, alas, we're led to believe that only one of them would do it. Uh, anyway, I like it. Obstacle three, check. And now, chess. Life-size wizard's chess, actually, which is chess. But the pieces are alive and they try to kill each other. And now, you have to stand in the, the little squares and be one of the pieces and try not to die but ron is a mini chess master and he takes charge in this moment it's his time to shine we've had hermione with the devil's snare get her moment we've had harry get his moment with you know the flying snitches i i, I mean keys now we have Ron getting his moment, and where he really shines is at the end. He sacrifices his own piece, his own knight, to allow Harry to win the chess mass. And this is this is some big old Gryffindor energy showing from Ron. His ride or die for the cause is clear as day here. And if he wasn't 11, we might say his Kahuna factor, but he's 11, and we can't make that joke. He gets a lot of shit in this fandom, and the movies, they made him comic relief. He's useless in the movies. This scene 
is completely toned down in the movie in, because he's riding the knight chess piece and he's only he's the only one actually of the three that didn't actually take the place of a chess piece and i think that this was the movie just making it not terrifying allowing the chess piece to be the one to take the blow and then ron just falls off in the book we're led to believe that they all three had to actually become the pieces. So if you are imagining this, he takes this hit square in the chest, or the head, or wherever that chest piece is aiming, and we have to imagine he does this like a boss. And he lives, thankfully. Obstacle 4. Check. The troll's already knocked out, so Harry and Hermione get to go straight through Obstacle 5, pass go, and collect $200, and now it's time for Snape's contribution to this obstacle course, which is a table full of potions with a riddle. Hermione's stoked because she's a total nerd, and she says that even the best wizards don't have an ounce of logic. They'd be stuck in there forever. We just read this and say, you know, cool, that makes sense, because we don't make the rules for this world, but, like, why? Why are wizards incapable of logic, apparently? I, I don't, it's not really worth harping on it, but it does certainly not really make sense if we think about it. If you know, please explain it to me. Use the cool new voicemail feature or, um what like whatever social media platform tickles your fancy because i don't understand it i just don't but i want to know why are wizards not capable of using logic but whatever i guess that's a thing hermione is not a normal wizard though she's a genius who's a muggle-born and grew up sitting through math class and having to solve word problems and multiple choice on scantrons. Pencil only, children. Pen won't be graded. She figures out the riddle. Of course she does. That's why she's there. There's only enough potion, though, in each of the safe potions for one person. Again, coincidentally... Harry makes the hero call, and he's decided that he's going to take the potion that takes him on towards the stone, and then directs Hermione to take the potion that takes her back, and tells her to go get Ron, make sure that he's okay, and send an owl to Dumbledore to come pick up his body if he dies. It's not a great plan, but obstacle six, check, and cliffhanger. There's, and this is a quote, there was already someone in the next chamber. It wasn't Snape, or even Voldemort. Dun, dun, dun. And that's the chapter. Tune in next week for the last one. That's a joke. Uh, well, actually, it's only partially a joke. Please actually uh, tune in next week, but we still have stuff to talk about today uh, and for the scouting report this week we're actually doing something a little bit different we're going to look at the obstacles scouting report okay so i've made myself pretty clear at this point and now that everyone has been reminded what the obstacles are these were clearly not set up 
to stop a grown-ass wizard, right? Would anybody be surprised if Quirrell actually went through any of them? Aside from getting past Fluffy and the Troll, I guess. But the rest, I don't think he was doing all the shenanigans that the trio had to do. I would bet that there's magic that would counter any of them. A severing charm to release the tentacles of the devil's snare, a freezing spell to stop the fluttering keys, or an advanced alohomora even to just get through the door and pass all that nonsense. An anti-transfiguration spell that stops the chess pieces from trying to kill you, an impervious spell that stops the flames in the potion room from burning you. You, you get my drift. It's If these were qualified witches and wizards and not children there's probably a 30 second solution to every single task that has been laid out in this chapter it's almost as if those obstacles were set up for children because they were dumbledore had them put in place to test harry and i will not be convinced otherwise uh, he wanted to know how this kid did under pressure and how he reacted in these different situations does he have what it takes to be the hero of these books or not is he capable of defeating Voldemort if given the chance? And what are the weaknesses that he needs to work on in this training that's happening as he's being raised, as Snape will later call it, like a pig for slaughter? That's why these obstacles actually exist. But what were they actually testing exactly? That's what we're doing this week's scouting report on. Each obstacle what was the test? What purpose did they actually serve? Before the obstacles, we had resourcefulness and intuition. Piecing together the mystery to even get this far is going to take resourcefulness and intuition. The puzzle pieces needed put together in order to find the, I don't know, the map to, hey, there's some shit going down and apparently I'm the last line of defense. That had to click in Harry's mind, and he had to know what was going on in order to get there. Hence all the clues in the whole book that we've been reading. So then we have Fluffy. Fluffy was testing daring and nerve. Trying to get past a three-headed dog is terrifying. It takes some serious cojones, and in order to take on Voldemort, who's so far from humanity, in behavior and form at this point, he's practically a beast himself, and a far more dangerous one than a three-headed slobber monster. You're going to need daring and nerve to face him. Devil's Snare. What is this one testing? Responding under pressure. You have a plant literally trying to squeeze the life out of you. That's pressure. Can you keep your head and figure out what to do to get through this deadly situation? You're going to come across a lot of them in your quest to murder the most dangerous serial killer of our time. You got to keep your head. You got to not die. And this is a decent little test for an 11-year-old. So... That brings us to the keys. What do they test you for? Attention to detail. Sure, there's flying, Harry's a seeker, blah, 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 blah. But this is about identifying the one correct key, keeping your eye on the prize, and not letting anything deter you from reaching that goal. 
It even takes a team approach to box it in and make sure that you are successful. Ultimately, that's what it's going to take for Harry to take down Voldemort is a team effort. There's going to be distractions along the way, and there's going to be little minute details that he has to catch on to or the trio has to catch on to in order to get to the end climax of these books and not die in the process. Attention to detail is going to be key. <laughs> See what I did? Yeah, we've reached that point of the show. So the next one is chess. This one's pretty obvious. It's strategy. Chess is a strategy game. But to win, it also takes a long view approach on that strategy. Taking down Voldemort isn't going to happen overnight. Otherwise, it would have happened by now. Like if Dumbledore did it himself. Maybe when Tom Riddle was a kid. Not saying you should harm children, but this one was a special case of awful. Anyway, to win, though, it also takes, you know, the ability to have patience and the ability to think strategically through a series of moves, thinking multiple steps ahead, playing a long game, even if it takes sacrifice along the way in order to reach the ultimate goal for the greater good. And chess, that's pretty much the name of the game. The troll. What's the troll testing? Well, it's not testing Harry. The troll's actually testing Quirrell. This was Dumbledore assessing not only what ability Quirrell had at his disposal, but also how he might try and come after the stone himself. Whatever Quirrell did here, he would choose something that he could get past himself and what he thinks looks like he's trying to put up as a protection. He reveals the type of wizard that he is. As the resident dark arts expert and the defense teacher, he didn't choose a spell. He didn't choose an enchantment. It's not a curse or a hex or really anything magical. He chose a creature, something big, something powerful, and not something he can conjure himself. He's not the powerful one. He's not the mastermind or the puppet master behind the villain plot. He just wants acceptance from those bigger and badder than he is. And Dumbledore learned that through this troll choice. Although, I don't know what he thought after he saw it about Harry trying to get past it. I doubt he saw Halloween coming, but I guess after Halloween he thought, well, great, Harry will just shove a wand up its nose and it'll be fine. All good. Crisis averted. Anyways, back to the obstacles that were actually meant for Harry. The potion that Snape put in is, again, obvious. It's logic. It's literally said in the chapter by Hermione, many wizards don't have an ounce of logic. Because somehow that makes sense. The ability to take the information in front of you and make the right decision for what to do next. And don't get yourself killed in the process. Think Hallows or Horcruxes type of thing. It's going to be important in order to get to the point where you're taking down, again, the most dangerous serial killer of the age. 
nothing like the easy stuff. Finally, the last obstacle that we don't get to yet in this chapter. So I'm not going to go into a ton of detail here because I'm going to, I'm just going to put on my seer hat here. Maybe I'd put a C or S E E R, whatever. We're going to talk about this mirror a lot next week. Um, but as far as what it's testing, the mirror is testing moral fiber. Only someone who wanted to find the stone and not use it would be able to get it. So if there's an ounce of Harry who's selfishly looking for the stone for his own gain, he won't get it either. But because he's true in his convictions of wanting to stop Voldemort from getting the stone, he's not there to get the stone. He's there to stop the wrong person from getting it. And this is ultimately what seals the deal for Harry as the hero, in my opinion, in Dumbledore's eye and in Dumbledore's master plan. This is the legendary stone that turns any metal into gold and produces the elixir of life, everlasting life, and all the gold one could ever expect to have and be able to just use for generations to come. Yet Harry only wants one thing, to stop Voldemort from getting it test passed although we we won't actually see it happen until next week but it made sense in the context of this scouting report to actually go through all of the uh, protections of the stone uh but let's be fair i'm not suggesting that dumbledore chose all of the obstacles specifically but he did choose the professors who would put them in place and he could have known what each would bring to the table, or he might have even just suggested some ideas that are off page that got us here. And he was doing this all to see if Harry could get through the obstacle course, and he did. Um, but it's it's funny because I think Dumbledore intended all this for just Harry, and what brought Harry through all of the obstacles was his greatest strength of all, his friends, which is actually a decent segue into doing some foreshadowing so let's let's do that for shadow so the foreshadow segment on the belated bench podcast is where we literally do exactly that four things that foreshadow something later to come in the series the first one this week is the trio standing off against neville hermione pulls out a damn combat spell to get them out of that situation and that happens about 4382 times in every book from here on out they they find themselves in a compromised situation a lot and hermione does some magic that the boys don't know how to do and drags them along while she fulfills the role of the real hero of these books and that's pretty much the formula for how they get through everything and actually live to the end because if this was just the ron and harry story these little idiots would be dead by now uh, anyway the second one ron his his exclamation uh is what i'm gonna call it uh, at hermione during the devil snare task are you a witch or not we get a call back to this in the Battle of Hogwarts where Hermione gets to give it back to Ron as he's wishing for Crookshanks to come help immobilize the Whomping Willow. If you're a rereader, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're somehow here and reading for the first time, that's going to make more sense uh, in the coming books. But she gets to give him an old, are you a wizard or not? And we 
get our, you know, right in the feels uh, during that high and high stress, intense situation of the final book. It's fun uh, and a great foreshadow. The third thing is the exchange actually right after this when they get past Devil's Snare. And this is a quote. Lucky you pay attention in herbology. Lucky Harry keeps his head in a crisis. There's no wood, honestly. Uh, it's a mashed up uh, couple of quotes. But this is the perfect example of exactly what makes this trio so effective together as a trio. As I mentioned earlier, Hermione is the genius who always knows what to do to save their asses from whatever situation that they're in. Harry keeps his cool under pressure and knows what to do to keep them moving toward their objective. And he's pretty much like a player coach. He's really good at that in-the-moment strategizing. And Ron is funny. I'm kind of kidding. Ron is the comic relief, and the movies make him useless, but honestly, Ron is, he's the linchpin. He's the moral compass of the group. He's the glue. He's the wild card. When Hermione's stuck and nervous, he knows what to say to get the best out of her. When Harry's struggling with confidence and about his abilities and what he should be doing next or struggling with moving forward, Ron is the support that keeps him grounded in moving forward. And when either of those other two come up short in their roles, Ron steps up and fills the gaps. From informing them of how shit actually works in the wizarding world when they're completely clueless after growing up with muggles, to being the hero who saves Harry's life, destroys the locket horcrux, and fakes it till he makes it into the Chamber of Secrets to get the basilisk fangs for Hermione destroyed the hup. The Hufflepuff's Cup Horcrux, which is something I apparently can't say very fast. He's a Ron of all trades, really. And he doesn't get enough credit sometimes in this fandom. So uh, we're going to give our fourth foreshadow to Ron as well. Him taking charge and sacrificing himself in the chess match. Now, this isn't literal luckily, although the author has said before that she considered killing Ronoff, and he does nearly die in The Half-Blood Prince. But this is foreshadowing when he steps up and he puts himself on the line, often coming through in the clutch, from putting himself and his broken leg between Harry and Sirius Black in the Shrieking Shack chapter of Prisoner, when they thought Sirius was there to kill Harry. And Ron was right there. And when he dives into the frozen pond to save Harry from drowning and retrieves the Sword of Gryffindor in the Silver Doe chapter of Deathly Hallows, Ron has no problem putting himself in harm's way and playing the hero when his number's called. And that wraps up our foreshadow segment, leading us into the Game of Inches. A Game of Inches. Okay, so... Uh, I tried something different this week. I did post this ahead of time uh, on social uh, just to see if I could get some some more engagement and reaction there. Uh, if you follow on social, you you saw it. Uh, it was on TikTok. It was on Twitter. It was on Facebook. And it was on Instagram. Um, so um, I'm going to try to uh, do different variations of that to get some more engagement with this segment. But as a reminder, if you happen to miss that, the question was, what if the trio didn't make it through the defensive obstacles in order to get to the stone? So here are my thoughts on this question. 
Dumbledore just <laughs> would have saved their asses. You know, you've probably heard me say this multiple times by now. I'm pretty sure I've said it just earlier in this uh, very podcast. And I'm actually, uh, in the meantime, also checking to see if any responses have popped up here uh, lately to that question. Um, nope, we've had some, we've had some likes and some retweets, but, uh, people aren't actually answering the question on social. Oh. Asking you shall receive, this is editing Zach flying in with a response from, well, friend of the podcast. Again, it's Sarah from first year's pod, uh, via TikTok on this game of inches, uh, question. And her response was, I feel like it wouldn't really impact anything. Like, Dumbledore would have shown up and rescued them, and Quirrell wouldn't have been able to get the stone. It's almost as if she had access to my show notes. Thanks, Sarah, for jumping in uh, on that one, and I will continue posting these Game of Inches questions on social. And uh, if I get them after I record the pod, I'll try to fly in like this uh, next time as well. As you were podcasting zach so anyways here are my thoughts uh dumbledore is just gonna save him you've probably heard me you know um go through this whole thing multiple times by now but i believe that dumbledore is disillusionment charmed out right now uh if that is a good way to say that he's invisible he's he's watching the whole time see I don't think he ever left Hogwarts to go to the Ministry at all. I think that was all a ruse to give Quirrell de Mort <laughs> the coast is clear to move ahead with the plot and the plan in order to try to go get the stone. And Dumbledore wants to see if Harry is going to be the hero that saves the day or not. And if he's going to pass these obstacles along the way, all the while he knows that the stone's safe, and he's going to be there. So, anyways, as a reminder, he did tell us, uh, if you need, you know, canon historical fact-checking along the way, he did tell us in the Mirror of said chapter, I don't need a cloak to become invisible. So, how far is it a stretch, really, to say that he faked going to the ministry and just made himself invisible? I think that's exactly what happened. He was invisible, tailing the trio, and he was watching the whole time. Why do I think that? Well, the theory we've been talking about this entire time is that I think the obstacle course was actually set up for Harry's testing more than keeping away a fully qualified and probably dark and capable wizard. So how's Dumbledore going to know the test worked if he's not there watching? If he's going to assess Harry's strengths and weaknesses, he would actually have to see them as they happen in those situations. Otherwise, he's just, what? Well, if this kid survives, he's good at all the things. Great. Not a solid plan. Now, I think he was taking notes, and he would have been able to just step in and take care of them if they failed on any of the obstacles. See, like, even... Even in the uh, moment with Ron in the chess game, my personal headcanon as I've gone through this is that I think he hung back just for a second to do some sort of healing spell or maybe a slight you know, cushion charm uh, between Ron and the, uh, and the 
blow from the chess piece and maybe he was the one that actually put Ron out. Anyways, basically what I'm saying is I think that he made sure that Ron wasn't actually in fatal danger in that chess match sacrifice. I think he made sure that he didn't just, you know, die there on the floor waiting for the other two to come back through if that was the game plan. So I think that if they had failed on any of those obstacles, he would have been there to adjust the circumstances to either make sure that they got through and take note of what needed attention in the training process or perhaps actually come out of his invisible state and literally save the day. That's what I think would have happened if the trio had failed on any of the obstacles along the way. Still uh, happy to get your responses. I would gladly share them in next week's episode uh, as well. Let's do awards before we get out of here. All right, so every week here on the Blade of Binge podcast, I give away three meaningless awards, uh, and they go to either characters or situations or plot lines or the author or whoever um, I feel deserves rewarding or thrown out or just, I think, drop the ball a little bit. So uh, we're going to start this week's award section with the game ball. The game ball. So the game ball is the MVP for the chapter. It's the standout positive character, the one that did cool stuff and deserves to be rewarded for that. That is the game ball. While all three of our little heroes in training had standout moments in this chapter, they don't make it to those moments without Hermione. So she's getting my game ball this week. If it wasn't for Hermione in this chapter, probably don't get past Neville, quietly at least, and even get out of the common room in the first place. They would have tried to overtake him physically and probably made a bunch of noise, woke a bunch of people up, and then you know, been th- you know, thwarted by Prof. McGee before they even got to the hallway. And this whole thing would have been a failure from the beginning. They probably do get past the fluff pup, but she gets credit here for taking the flute and going last through the trap door. If I'm wrong about Dumbledore watching their six, Harry and Ron definitely die in the Devil's Snare without Hermione as well. She's the one that remembers the dark and damp. She's the one that makes the fire. While she does have her moment of uh, lapse in brain power, I guess you could say, uh, it, she's still the one that comes through. They might get the key in the next task that was Harry's task, you know, being the seeker and all, but it did take a team effort, and despite not being a comfortable flyer, Hermione played a key role in getting that one done, and she gets credit for that too. And chess is Ron's game, but there's no way Harry's figuring out that riddle on his own. He was absolutely clueless, so that's 100% Hermione as well. Bottom line, if Dumbledore isn't really there, Harry and Ron don't survive to the end of this book without Hermione. So now let's give away the red card. Red card. So the red card is the exact opposite of the game ball. This is the character that we wish we could just throw out of the chapter or the book 
or the series or the Wizarding World. However far you want to take that. This one, I don't want to go too far, uh, but it's short and simple. This one is Professor McGonagall. Old Prof McGee was so dismissive of the trio when they came to her with a concern about the safety of the Sorcerer's Stone, and they were right. She brushed them off as silly little kids because we needed the plot, and luckily these meddling kids are about to save the day. No thanks to you, Prof McGee, and eat your heart out, Scooby-Doo. Let's do the fumble. Fumble. So the fumble is the award that I give away usually to the author or to the plot or to the book itself. Uh, it's quite literally where the text drops the ball for me. So for this chapter, if I'm wrong about Dumbledore and these obstacles, they, they don't make any sense at all if my theory is incorrect. They're not stopping a grown-ass wizard. They're completely unnecessary. Dumbledore's protection of the stone is literally the only one needed. The rest of this is just so we have some action for the mini heroes to go through. And this is what people mean when they say they're kids' books. Overall, people are wrong when they say that. It's, in, it's still a good book. I love this book. But in this section, without the intrigue of it being set up by old Dumbledore in a strategic way to test these kids, it's a very once-upon-a-time type of a thing to have isn't it anyway with that we've reached the end of this episode of the binge as always shout out to producer jack who we work like a dog remember to follow and subscribe to the show it's on apple podcasts it's on spotify in both audio and video format and all the other pod players as well and it's on youtube uh, if you're currently on a player that allows reviews please leave one and any of them please subscribe uh, this is a fully independent production i write record edit promote and all of this stuff myself and i'd love for you to support the show um, and if you want to do so you can do it in many ways one of them is becoming a patron over on patreon you'll get early access to add free episodes both of the tiers that are set up there you'll have bonus content if you become an all-star there's a link to this in the show notes uh, also please keep an eye on social for next week's game of inches question uh, for your chance to weigh in and have your response on the show that can be written and through those social channels as i've said earlier or you can leave a voicemail on the website and have it played it's belatedbinge.com the voicemail button is on the right hand side and the website has links to all the things it has all of the past uh, episodes it has all of the youtube videos it's got links to uh, how you can support it's got uh, everything on there so go go use it please <laughs> if you're reading along next week we're gonna wrap up the sorcerers or philosopher's stone with chapter 17 the man with two faces i'll see you next week on the Belated Binge Podcast. There was already someone there, but it wasn't Snape. It wasn't even Voldemort.